All righty. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So glad that you guys are here this morning. Like I mentioned last week, we're getting into the the final part of First and Second Samuel. Uh, we call it kind of the epilogue. Uh, it's the end of these two books, which were originally one book. And the author is taking some time to wrap some things up. So we had four sections left. Last week was the first of four. Um, and, and this epilogue is something that we can still continue to learn some valuable lessons in our lives. And as you can see here, first and second Samuel, this study that we've been going through, we titled it lessons from leaders. And we've been learning lessons, good and bad from all the leaders that are presented in first and second Samuel, most notably Saul, a lot of things we shouldn't do. Uh, and David, a lot of things that we should do. The last section is not chronological. We don't know exactly when these things happen, but they are specific stories and instances and things that the author wanted to share with us and, and really highlighting the difference between David and Saul. Saul thought a lot about himself, his kingdom, what he could do, what he could accomplish, how he could hold on to what he had, which was a kingdom, in relationship to, or in opposition, I should say, to the way that David truly did live his life, uh, most of it, was the idea of how can I increase my relationship with God, my involvement with God, my view of God, how do I see God involved in my life? He emphasizes uh, the importance of God in his life, and we see that as a, a stark contrast between he and Saul. And, and so we know that last week we talked a little bit about the author presenting this in chiastic structure, uh, and, and it's kind of like a sandwich. We're going to see some things repeated. Uh, we're going to see David dealing with consequence of sin. The first week we looked at uh, Saul's sin, and at the last week we'll see him deal with his own sin. Uh, the second part was we saw David uh, in, in the importance of his mighty men. Uh, and, and what that was was leadership being passed on to the next generation and how important it is to be a good leader and to lead in that way. And then sandwiched right in the middle, the important part of the chiastic structure, that middle section, we see a bunch about David uh, being a worshiper. And that's where we find ourselves today. Uh, it, it, we saw, like I said, dealing with sin. We saw that David was a mighty warrior who passed on leadership traits to his people. And then we know that David was a worshiper. And these center section that we're looking at this week and next week, these psalms, uh, are the important part. And again, we see that the author of First and Second Samuel put them in the middle so that we would see that. Today we'll be looking at the first C, which is David's Song of Deliverance. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to invite you to write down Psalm 18. Uh, it's basically this psalm, so it's kind of fun to compare and contrast that. Today is 51 verses. 
And so we're not going to hop into Psalm 18 and read Psalm 18 also. So that's why I wanted to give you that little nugget in case you want to look at it throughout this week. Uh, and, and you can ki- compare and contrast that on your own. But it's, it's very similar to Psalm 18, uh, this Psalm that we're going to be looking at today. As we looked at this chapter, this psalm, we thought it was time to break out Pastor Kevin's chiastic cheeseburger. Does anyone remember Pastor Kevin's chiastic cheeseburger? I see a hand or two. Uh, and I know that in a military community, there's a lot of uh, turnover, but we've seen chiasm before in literature, especially Old Testament. And Pastor Kevin is the lead pastor down at the Lacey campus. He came up with this uh, cheeseburger visual. And today we're going to see more chiasm. We have a chiasm inside of a chiasm. Okay, so we're looking at the end of the book, these last few chapters, and the chiastic structure. And in this psalm that we're looking at today, one part of the chiasm, we're going to see chiastic structure. Uh, in the first four verses, we're going to see praise for the Lord. And then at the end, the last four verses, we're going to see praise for the Lord. We're going to see uh, the cheese there, the important part of a cheeseburger, in my opinion. We're going to see the Lord's deliverance in verses 5 through 20, but then also again in verses 29 to 46. And any good cheeseburger there, uh, right there in the middle, we got that beef uh, in how we're going to call C, and we're going to see David's obedience in light of that, verses 21 to 28. So we can see here that David in this psalm starts out with a big idea of praise. We see that at the beginning, and we see that at the end. It's very important. That's where he wants to start. That's where he wants to end. Then we see the sections on deliverance, which is so important. David continues to give God credit for the deliverance he's seen in his life. And then the middle section. The middle section is so important. David's obedience. If you want to be a person of worship, not only on Sunday mornings when we're singing, but also throughout the week as we live, we're going to see today how worship and obedience go hand in hand. And that is something that's going to be highlighted here in this psalm. David's faith is highlighted. Even when there was major treachery in his life, he continued to trust in the Lord. The aim of his life, even though he's a a, a man who sinned and failed sometimes, the aim of David's life is, or was obedience. And we see that highlighted today. So today, our big idea uh, for our sermon today is going to be godly leaders worship through obedience. And if you've been here for any amount of the time as we've been studying this book, uh, or these two books, First and Second Samuel, you'll know that we believe that everyone sitting out here today is a leader. Doesn't matter if you own a company or work for a company, if you live in a neighborhood, if you're married, if you're not, if you have children, if you serve, if you don't serve, you're leading in some way. People look up to you, they see you, uh, and so everyone, no matter who you are, is a leader in some way, and that's why we believe that this sermon series has been so important for everybody, because there truly is something we can all learn. We want to be godly leaders. We want to lead in a way that honors God. And in this book, we've been able to see that. My son, uh, Cole, a lot of you know him. He was my baby, my third son, I should say, my baby. Uh, he was an athlete. He, uh, he worked hard 
at playing sports. It started out at a young age. I love talking to you guys out here. A lot of you are parents of kids who are playing basketball here on Saturdays. Cole played basketball here on Saturdays. He played youth football. He uh, got into middle school, was taking it really serious, playing a lot of football, playing a lot of basketball, running track. Um, And then he got into high school. And I noticed something different between he and his three siblings. When he got to high school, he took his classes very seriously. He took nutrition seriously. And then he took sports very seriously. He spent time outside of practice, outside of games, trying to become the best athlete that he could. Now, being my fourth child, uh, I had two boys who had played football and track and field before that. My daughter had cheered. Uh, So I had been involved with athletics. I was coaching at the high school. Um, But I knew that there was something a little bit different from Cole than my other sons and my daughter who had gone before him. He would study. He would look at tape. He would take the time to visualize what he was doing, uh, what he did, what he could have done different, what he'll do against a certain uh, wide receiver or cornerback on a team that's coming up this weekend. He eat, slept, breathed whatever sport he was in. He loved that. His goal was to get to college and to play football uh, at college, which he was able to do. He got to uh, play football at Central Washington University uh, and experience the college uh, football opportunity uh, that a lot of kids don't get to. And, And as I was thinking this week... What I realized about Cole is not only did he want to play sports, a lot of us wanted to play sports. I played sports in high school. I showed up to practice, and I showed up to games, and that was about it. And I had fun, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then there are some, a few, that are different than us. They're wired different than us. It, 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 they think about it outside of practice, outside of games, and it allows them especially if they've been given some God-given active, or, uh, uh, abilities, to get to that next level and to play at that next level. And, and so he thought about football especially, not only at practice, not only at games, but he thought about it all the time. And that allowed him to find success in what he was doing. Now, similarly... Today, godly leaders are going to learn that worship... It's not just something we do while we're singing at church. So many people think, yeah, I go to church on Sunday mornings and I sing some songs. That's about all the time I have for worship. And, and yet, we're going to see throughout this passage and some other passages that worship is not only about Sunday mornings. Worship is a way of life. Worship is a way of life. At the very heart of worship, we're going to see that that at the heart of worship, if you want to be somebody who uh, looks like a worshiper, who acts like a worshiper, who understands worshiping God, you're going to see someone who is willing to obey what God has called us to do. So godly leaders worship through obedience. Open your Bibles today to 2 Samuel 22, and that's the chapter we're going to be looking at. It starts out in verse 1 and says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and let's just pause there really quick for a quick minute. This is just an intro. It's it's likely 
Uh, this is in David's earlier years. Uh, we see here uh, an, he alludes to his enemies. There were always a lot of enemies against David. Uh, countries warring against him, especially early on in his uh, kingship. And then we also see here uh, that not only that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies, but also from the hand of Saul. Now, I think this was deliberately written to reflect David's heart. David never considered Saul to be his enemy. If you've been with us from the beginning and been most weeks, you know that Saul brought David along. David killed Goliath. He invited him into his, uh, into his chamber, basically. David played the harp. Saul uh, got ticked off at David and the love that people had for him, so he hurled a spear at him, not only once, but three times. And yet, even with all of that, Saul trying to make David into his enemy, David did not allow that to happen. And I love how the author points that out here in the way that he structures this statement, right? It matters what you say, and it matters how you say it. And we see that here in the author. Uh, And so he says that the Lord protected him, delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so we see even there uh, a glimpse into who David was. David always anointed or uh, uh, elevated Saul to the position that God had brought to him. When he had opportunities to take out Saul on multiple occasions, he did not do it. Because he believed that God put Saul into the position he was in as king of Israel. And then when it was time for David to take that place, that Saul would take, or or God would take Saul out of that spot. And so he never acted on his opportunities. So that's quick from the introduction. Then let's jump into the first A section and some praise for the Lord. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. David starts out here with a bang. Right? There's no doubt in who he's talking about. Uh, he, there's no doubt in who he is. He shows himself to be a worshiper. And he worships the Lord using eight praise-filled descriptions. Do you see that up there? Of the, he, he's praising the Lord, and he uses these descriptors of who God is in his life. My God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge— David says, I am a man who has been chased. The battle has come to me, and you have continued to show yourself faithful. This theme that we see coming out of David's words here, that David, is a, uh, that's, David sees God as a strong and benevolent protector of him. God has chosen him to be the next king, and he had protected him through all the violence that came at him. David is communing with God right now in his worship. And we see that as he pens out this psalm, that he is acknowledging who God is in his life. 
He's not just talking about God in generalities. A lot of times it's easy for us to read through a passage of scripture, see God described as something and say, yeah, that's true. I believe that about God. But these were very personal to him, right? These aren't just big, heady theological statements that we barely understand, right? That we're not even sure exactly what we mean, but we've heard it attributed to God so we can say it. David understood what each one of these things meant through his personal experience. God had been his rock. God had been his stronghold, right? Bringing him salvation. So it's important when you and I worship, you and I, grace workers today, when we worship God, that we make it personal, right? We need to make our worship personal, not just sing words to songs, but think about how they apply to your life. Not just use words in our prayer that we hear other people say, but know what that means. Make it really personal. The first part of our big idea is that godly leaders worship, right? If we're looking at the big idea, it's godly leaders worship through obedience, But you and I, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have been called to be people of worship. We've also been called to be people of obedience, and that's why I think it goes hand in hand so well. But you and I have been called to worship God. And you and I need to say, enough with me ignoring that call from God to be a worshiper of him and making excuses I don't sing very well. I, I, I don't know how to be eloquent in my speech. And we use excuses so that we don't have somebody else, right? Vanessa or Jeremy or Kelly or whoever's up here, they can lead us into worship. They got great, they got great voices, and, and we can let them worship for us. And yet God has called us to worship. And some of you might say, well, that's through obedience, and I can do that throughout the week, and that's how I'll worship. And yet, we know that there are a lot of commands throughout Scripture that say, lift your voice unto the Lord. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And they don't say, if you think you got a good voice, right? So you and I need to become people who are worshiping Sunday morning, but also throughout the week. And it goes hand in hand. So that's one of the things I'm going to call us all out on today. Let's become people of worship. Amen. God, you are my provider, David says. You are my protector. You are my giver and sustainer of life. Those are things that you and I can apply to our own lives, right? I was looking at what what he had said and, and started thinking through things that I could say. And that's what popped into my mind. My provider, my protector, my giver and sustainer of life. You and I can improve the way we worship by making it personal. In our prayer life right? In our worship on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, and also in our obedience. Lord, may we improve how we worship you. Let's continue on here in in verse five. The waves, for the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord To my God I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Now this, in the chiastic structure, this is B. This is talking about the Lord's deliverance. David goes into this and says, hey, 
You have always been faithful. You have delivered me, and you continue to do so. He uses a nautical imagery here at the beginning of this. David describes how helpless he would be without God. This would have really spoken to an Israelite, uh, since they were not exactly known for their sailoring. Right Throughout their history, they made only occasional and often disastrous attempts to ply at the sea. That was written by Bergeron this week. And he, he was talking about all the different times where Israelites had taken to the sea, Mediterranean Sea, or even uh, down at the, the, the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, and it had not really worked out well for them. I don't know about you, uh, but there's a part of me that is afraid of the ocean. I love to be on the sand, on the beach. I love to look out there. I love to see the sunrise or set over the ocean. But I don't know that I want to hop in very many boats and go out in the middle of the sea. Right? There's something kind of scary about the ocean and all that water, at least for me. So when I read this this week, I was like, yeah, I can kind of see where David's coming from. And yet, God hears David's cry from his temple. Right? God is in his temple. The sea, the waves, they toss, they turn, they're unstable, and yet God is in his heaven, in his home, his temple, and he is not moved. Praising God for his nearness, we see that here in David, and for his attentiveness to his people. God, you have protected me. And David keeps going on with new imagery. Uh, he's on a roll, and he's not going to be stopped. He keeps going here in verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heaven trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. What we see here is David and a powerful description of who God is. Right, As we read that, we see a glimpse into who David sees God to be in his lives. You and I are no match. You may not be afraid of the sea or, or the ocean uh, or any raging river like I am. You may not be afraid of that, but even the best is no match for the power of nature sometimes. And yet, we see here David saying that no matter what comes in nature, it's no match for my God. I love, it, it made me think this week as, as we were reading over this passage, uh, that even when Jesus came to the earth, he showed power over nature, right? Throughout the Gospels, we saw that. 
God incarnate, Jesus Christ living on the earth. His disciples very afraid one night in the, in the boat, right? It's being tossed and, and, and thrown around in the middle of the sea. And yet Jesus shows his power over nature and he calms the sea. God not only hears his people, but he acts on behalf of those who obey him. You and I, God is there for us. And godly leaders worship through our obedience. Verse 17, he sent out from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David continues on talking about the Lord's deliverance here. And it's good for you and I to know our relationship to God. Who he is and who we are. And we see that here in David and in the way that he penned these words of this psalm. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs, we are told, is the beginning of wisdom, right? We don't need to fear him in the traditional sense of the word fear. Sometimes people hear that and they're like, well, that doesn't make sense. God is a loving God. Why do we need to fear him? But it's the the sense of you and I being in need of someone who is strong enough to save us. Right? It's the same idea of, of a healthy fear as a child of his parents. Right? And some of you may be going, well, I don't, I don't have a kid or I've never had a child. I don't understand this. The, a child grows up when they understand that what mom and dad say is for their benefit, even if it's hard to hear. When they do something wrong, they screw up and you have to go and discipline them. Those, they should have a healthy fear of you right? Your, your, your discipline of your child needs to be God honoring, but it needs to help them along the path to become a young man or a young woman that is going to live in a responsible way here in society. You and I have been called to do that. So there's this healthy fear that we can have of authority. And we see that here in David. Even as one who God delighted in David, right? He, God delighted in him. David consistently, we see it throughout this book and other writings, especially the Psalms, he admits his weakness. He writes about his weaknesses, his failures, his sin. And then he takes opportunity in that same uh, psalm or song to promote God's strength. Do you and I accept the weaknesses in our own life? Do we allow them to highlight the goodness and strength of God? Can we be a people who takes our failures, who takes our fears, who takes those things and uses them to turn the attention to God and his goodness and his faithfulness? That's what we see here from David. He gives all the credit to God for his victories and all the credit to God for his successes as the king of Israel. He constantly admits his weaknesses, and he showers God with praise. Sometimes when I think about my weaknesses, my failures, things that I haven't quite completed this week that I needed to or that I should have, or I tried and I really blew it, right? A lot of times I become internally focused. 
I screwed up. I didn't make this happen. I forgot to do this, right? And yet David gives us story after story, psalm after psalm, where we can see he takes his weaknesses, he takes his failures, and he highlights who God is in his life. He makes it personal, and yet that's transferable to you and I also. Let's become a people that in light of our weaknesses, we shower God with praise. And again, God delighted in him. God doesn't need you to be perfect. He is. And so God finds delight in David, a leader who wants to praise him, who wants to obey him. And when he blows it, when he comes up short, he looks back to his God. God is where David turned his attention to consistently. And that's why God delighted in him. David begins to highlight his worship through obedience. Because godly leaders worship through obedience. Here we find ourselves in the middle of this chiasm. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the uh, cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you can yourself, or you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With a purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God is righteous. There is nothing wrong with him. His ways are perfect. His ways are pure. And for his people, that is what he has desired for you. When we talk about Uh, becoming a Christian, placing our faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of times we talk about this great exchange. I get to give up my filth, my sin, my unrighteousness, my rebellion, my faithlessness for Jesus Christ's righteousness. Now, I know you're all saying amen inside your hearts because that's the gospel. We should be talking about that every week. That is the most important thing, to understand that you can never earn your way to heaven, and praise God, you don't need to. Jesus Christ, from you, all he wants you to say is, I need you. I need what you have, which is righteousness. I can't earn it. I can't make it there. I'm going to try my hardest, and I'm going to try to live in a way that honors you, but I have what I have to give you is like filthy rags. And any time I'm able to accomplish anything, whether here at this church or in DuPont, our community, or in, even on my street, if I can do something that, that in some way is good, I need to pray that that brings honor and glory to God. Right? It's not me. It's not by my strength. It's not by my power. But it's by God's. And that's what we continue to see in David's life. David is, to, is able to say confidently that he has been righteous and clean and blameless and pure. All those things that he just talked about, right? Which is sort of crazy. 
because even though we spent a ton of times on all the things that David did right, and there are so many great lessons from, for leaders that we could learn from him, we spent a lot of time on how badly he screwed up, right? You know, he, he, he had the sin with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband, right? That's kind of the big one, the one we always think about. But David screwed up sometimes, right? So you see the way that he engages with God here, and you go, that's kind of crazy. How do you say that you're righteous, clean, blameless, pure, right? When we know, when we know that David has screwed up. I think uh, Kevin and I, as we were reading through this this week and studying this week, what became really obvious to us here is the concept of faith in the Old Testament. When you and I talk about faith, we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is something that had happened, right? And, and, and so we can place our faith in what Jesus did for us. Now, before Jesus Christ came to earth, David was living, right? I mean, we know that. And yet, David had faith in God, right? David had faith in God, in a God who forgives. And I think that's what we see here, is a healthy view of failure, of sin, of rebellion. David understands, by faith, that God has forgiven me. Even though the way we understand it in light of the cross, that had not taken place yet. Uh, Hebrews 11. I won't go there today because we just don't have the time. But it talks about all these Old Testament people who believed in God. And that was what was credited to them as righteousness. In the Old Testament, there were tons of laws, things that you needed to do. And when you screwed up, you had to sacrifice something. Right? I mean, and, and the Old Testament's full of that. And yet we know from Scripture itself that God has always desired faith from his people. So if you're living today thinking that the Old Testament's completely different than us, that if you screwed up, you just had to pay a fine, maybe sacrifice an animal, right, and make it all right with God, you're missing the point. David showed great faith in God. And his desire to forgive him, right? And he lived in the beauty of that. He understood the gospel before the gospel was even fully understandable. That there's nothing we can do. We can't sacrifice the perfect sacrifice to somehow make it right for God to see me in a way that he, he will now find me acceptable, David's not saying that he's never sinned. He knows what he's done. But he is trusting that his repentance, when he did sin, was what appeased God. David is a grace guy, right? We have in our name of our church, the grace works. We talk about that raw material of grace, that God has extended his grace to people who are unworthy of it. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. It's a free gift given to us. And I think that David understands that. David obeyed God, not because his works somehow made him right in God's eyes, but he obeyed God because he understood that if you truly love God and want to worship him, that happens through obedience. And that's really what grace is to you and I today. 
There's no good works that we can do to somehow make our relationship better between us and God. And yet we're called to good works, right? We're called to obedience. We're called to live a life of worship that shows our love for God. So David was a grace guy. He acted out that grace that had been extended to him through obedience and worship. I like the way he says, with the purified, you deal purely. In faith, David believes that God has purified him. You and I can have that same confidence. We can take our sin before the Lord and lay it at his feet and believe that when he offers us uh, forgiveness, that we have truly been forgiven. We have been purified from it. God is the only one who can purify our hearts of our sin and our rebellion. And so we need to have faith in that and we need to lean into that. Now he's going to transition back to how God delivered him from evil men that pursued him. Right? We got the chiastic structure in full force. He makes these last general statements in verses 26 to 28. Right? We saw this already. If you're merciful, blameless, purified, and humble, you can expect a certain treatment from God. But if you're crooked and prideful, you can expect another. David understood how it worked there. So as we continue on here uh, in verse 29, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord. David knows who God is. For you are, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against the troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in you. Really quickly, I want to highlight verse 30 there. Uh, I think this is an awesome verse. David feels like a superhero, right, with God on his side. For by you, I can run up against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. That's what God, the confidence that God has given David in that life with him. Verse 32, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set my, uh, me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. These beautiful words that David is using to, to highlight his relationship with God, what he feels about who God is in his life, right? He's giving compliments to God and acknowledging God for who he is. Uh, what kind of popped out at the end there, we said, so that my arms, or we, we noticed that he, David said, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze, right? Bows are made out of wood, so that you can bend it, right? So that you can pull back the arrow and fire it. And yet David it has so much confidence in his God that he says, you could let me bend bronze, right? That's where I find my strength. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. David continues to give credit to God over and over and over. And that's what we see here at the end of this Psalms. Verse 36 you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness 
made me great. You have given or you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet. For you, again, David giving credit to God, equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had uh, not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. David here is saying, uh, Lord, your deliverance, I see it. I've seen it from our own people. When the Israelites came after me, right, under Saul or under any of the other treacherous uh, attempts to overthrow David as king, I see your deliverance there. I also see it from the foreigners. God gave victory to David. And David says over and over and over again, you alone deserve praise. You alone have saved me. And David concludes this psalm. He goes right back to this praise of God where we started. More praise for the Lord. Verse 47, the Lord lives And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me and delivered me from men of violence. Now here at the end, he's summing all of this up, and and in what a beautiful way. He says, the Lord lives, right? And that God is the rock of my salvation. David is acknowledging who God is. He has confidence in everyday life, and we've seen that, but also in ultimate salvation that is found in God alone. David's words, you can read them, you can see this. His confidence and ultimate salvation is found in God alone in your and my life. Do we truly believe that our confidence and ultimate salvation can be found in God alone? And for you and I, through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus died in my place. He paid what I could not pay. He paid for the sin that I had done, although he was perfect. The gospel truth is where David ends this psalm, highlighting the promise God made to bring the Messiah through him, through his lineage. Let's look at these last couple verses. For this I will praise you, O Lord, 
among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Again, throughout the Old Testament, we see all of these prophecies and prophetic words about Jesus Christ coming. And here we know that God's plan all along was to bring Jesus Christ through David's line. Salvation of all of Israel and of all the nations, he says here, was coming through David and his offspring forever. David clings to this hope. David clings to this, and you and I can too. Godly leaders worship through obedience. You and I can show true worship by obeying what God has called us to do. Obedience is an act of worship. When you do what's right and you bring honor and glory to God's name, you are worshiping him. Not in the traditional sense of singing a song. And a lot of times we allow that to kind of cloud our vision. We don't understand fully what we have been called to do. But obedience is so important. Romans 12.1 says this. I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Godly leaders worship through obedience. And godly leaders obey as an act of worship. So this week, can you and I look at obedience maybe through a new lens? That not only have we been called to obey, but our obedience shows worship to God. When we recognize the great salvation we have from our Lord through Jesus Christ, we should want to obey. And that's where you and I need to get to this week. Would you pray with me?